Stand out from the crowd by gaining the right experience. The next step in your cybersecurity journey starts with Cybrary. Sign up for the Insider Pro or Teams product to learn and develop skills and reach your goals. On this episode of the Cybrary podcast, we welcome back Base Operations, introducing Scott Money, the VP of Engineering. These days, everyone knows of Google, but Mike, Jonathan, and Scott throw back to the days of Lycos, before PHP, server-side scripting, cookies, or SSL. So, what launched Google into becoming the premier name in search engines all around the world? And what advancements were pivotal in the successes and failures of those companies since the 1990s? Scott dives into the role that base operations plays in data gathering and how people and companies today can benefit from and are impacted by the wealth of information on the internet. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Cyberary Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gruen, VP of Engineering and CISO here at Cyberary, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Myers and Scott Money from Base Operations. Jonathan, you want to give a quick intro? Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, I'm Jonathan Myers. I'm the principal infrastructure engineer here at Cyberary, so I'm responsible for defending and building out all of our uh, cloud systems that serve over 3 million users uh, worldwide. Scott. Yeah, so uh, I'm Scott Money. I'm the VP of Engineering at uh, Base Operations. Uh, I'm responsible for all the technology implementation and and data acquisition that we have. And and uh, I started my career back uh, in uh, the '90s with at uh, Lycos, uh, doing uh, you know search and and uh, uh, web search and in all sorts of uh, different things through the decade I was there. Uh, after that, I uh, worked through uh, a, a bunch of SaaS companies and made my way over to uh, work with Corey on uh, base operations. Yep. And I'm glad you mentioned Corey. So she was uh, a guest of ours about a year ago um, and uh, one, of our, one of our favorite guests. And we want to have uh, base operations come back. And uh, for those that haven't, uh, please go back and check out that episode where uh, we talked to Corey from base operations. She's the CEO and about the the their journey as a company. It's, uh, I think, one of my favorite podcasts, um, and not just because I was on it. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, so um, for those that don't know, maybe just a, a quick thing, what does, uh, what does Base Operations do? Yeah, so um, uh, uh, Base Operations overall is a micro-intelligence platform. So basically taking, uh, taking all uh, the threat data that we can, we can incorporate into our analysis and then present it in an easily digestible way uh, uh, on, uh, on a map. So uh, users uh, can make assessments around uh, location-based crime and get a historical perspective about that crime in that area, and then make predictions and and uh, do analysis on trends uh, where things might be going in the future. Who are you typically like selling to? Who's your sort of buying personas and such? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really anybody, I mean, largely multinational. So um, people that are traveling a lot pre-last year, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Anybody that's got to uh, look at uh, uh, logistics across uh, large areas uh, of the planet, uh, anybody that uh, has, you know, a footprint globally that wants to do analysis and understand crime in uh, particular areas. So really, uh, anybody that has a, a location-based uh, um, infrastructure. Interesting. And the data you're collecting is it mostly publicly accessible data? Like how, what? Where are you getting your sources? How does that all work? 
Yeah, so it's it's coming from uh, a, a lot of different sources. So, um, you know, government data, depending on the jurisdiction, can be the most reliable or can be the least reliable. So um, it's a definitely a good place to start. Um, also, we look at uh, NGOs and academic research um, as another uh, a pillar of our of, of our data research. Um, also, uh, social media platforms, uh, whether it's individual crime reporting or trends through uh, you know social media feeds like uh, Twitter and things like that. Um, I suppose uh, uh, Parler would have been a good one to add, um, but uh, it's not there anymore. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, uh, um, yeah, so uh, NGOs, uh, NGOs, uh, 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 government organizations and social media and news media. So if you're looking at, uh, you know, areas that are really challenging to get into, sometimes uh, the news feeds can be uh, um, true and then redacted and being able to capture that data as it's uh, becomes available is a useful um, a useful way to get a sense of uh, uh, the threats in, in that particular area. Cool. That's actually when you were talking about social, I, I think I even brought this up the first episode or the first time we talked to Corey was um, there's the XKCD about like the, the guy who's experiencing an earthquake and then sends it out on Twitter and the, you can sort of the, the speed of Twitter faster than the, the ramifications of the earthquake. And so, um, so similar with crime and being on Twitter or whatever on social and then saying, Hey, there's something happening here can actually get out ahead of it. Pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, I think there there are companies out there that do um, you know kind of monitoring last second you know, alerting on on data. We find that having a historical perspective on the data allows you to make analysis or look at analysis and establish trends over time. So you can see start to identify patterns um, that aren't you know necessarily predictive but can show you trends and things to be aware of and think about as you're going forward um you know there are eventually through development of machine learning models or artificial intelligence we could get to the point where our models are a little bit more or better predictive um but you have to be careful of things like confirmation bias and things like that which uh, a lot of a lot of uh, uh companies that get into crime analysis through ml and and ai run into so you know the idea basically you know if i have a lot of crime well what's the natural reaction i put in more police when i put in more police what do i find more, more crime. crime what do i need to combat combat the crime more police so um you know there's some some studies out there that say that if you put more police in areas that are traditionally considered low crime you would actually see an increase in crime Be, not because the crime is increasing but because the police are actually finding it so um so you have to be careful of that there is definitely a problem um that you want to be aware of um anytime you're trying to make a, a predictive analysis of data Yeah. Um, nice. Oh. Question. I have a question on, so you guys, I'm assuming you guys are just basically like a, a SaaS product for the most part, right? Like you're not installing on customer sites and then trying to ingest data there. No. Um, cool. Interesting. I I actually want to ask you about Lycos. I'm sorry. You dropped that and then you just like <laughs> drove right by it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Um, so for those younger listeners on here, Lycos used to be basically the, what, it was like a Yahoo and Google back in the day. Yeah. 
Um, it was probably one of the companies back when my friends and I were talking about where we wanted to work. And there was this possibility of maybe interviewing at the search company that was just starting up. And we were probably like, oh, who needs another search company? We've got AltaVista and Lycos and the rest <laughs> of them. Uh, and that company was Google. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lycos actually uh, held the patent for the first web crawler. So it came out of a, uh, a, uh, uh, an academic research project out of Carnegie Mellon University. And um, they gave exclusive rights to it, uh, to Lycos to build their business homes. And unfortunately, they uh, they didn't enforce the patent until it was much, much too late and was more like patent trolling than than enforcement at that point. Ah. So, uh, uh, so yeah, but uh, yeah, a little bit of uh, history there. Uh, Lycos uh, had the first patent for uh, web crawling. That's yeah, pretty I think- cool. Lycos uh, owned uh, AngelFire, which was, I think, the first company that I built a website on when I was in sixth or seventh grade, right? Like, it was precursor to MySpace. Like, you just had to have, like, a website. That was the worst thing, right? Like, if I remember correctly, it had all of the terrible things that, like, they tell you don't do now, right? Like, the mouse cursor had, like, the trailing, like, mouse cursor. It played music automatically, like there was like snow falling on the page. Like it was just the worst design website, but that was like all the rage. And yeah. I, yeah. You're talking about the one that you designed. I would just want to be clear. Yes. But. Yes. The one I designed because it was, yeah, there wasn't anything like, I don't think CSS existed at that point. No, no. So it was I mean, all like, just HTML. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I did mine on GeoCities. I was a competitor. I went for the competitor. Ooh. Sorry. <laughs> Lycos at the time actually owned two different platforms for um, web development. Uh, one was AngelFire and the other was uh, Tripod. And mm. uh, so they had AngelFire skewed younger and, and Tripod was um, uh, for a little bit more, uh, I guess, older. Mature. 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 Yeah. <laughs> you could categorize as that. Um and, and I mean, it was it was a fantastic time to be part of a, a, a company like that. You know, uh, it was growing immensely. Um, you know, they had a very quick IPO, uh, you know, grew to, you know, thousands of people and was in, uh, acquired internationally. And um, things didn't go well after that. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm curious what it was like. Because I think that's, I don't know, I would liken it to almost be like an early Facebook employee, right? Like it was such a different thing back then that like, how did you tell people what you did for a living? Because that wasn't, you know, like common knowledge, right? Like, I don't think it was like trying to explain Facebook to people that weren't in college, like when it first came out, they were just like, no. Um, But yeah, I'm curious, like what that was kind of like. Our, Our CEO, Bob Davis, would go around or this was his story he would tell. He would go into like all these Fortune 500 companies, talk to the CEOs, and he would change their homepage to Lycos. And those guys had no idea how to change their homepage. So <laughs> they were just stuck with it. Like that was his whole thing. So yeah, that that was definitely indicative of the, of the environment at the time um, where, uh, uh, you know, people just didn't understand it. And I think, um, I think it, it was... Search was, and at the time, you know, the homepage was the, the everybody's gateway into the internet. Like, unlike today, where you just have an empty box uh, uh, in going to Google or having Google Chrome and that be your entry point into the internet, 
you know, everybody was had these like home pages, and and that was your gateway in, and uh, and you know, like was like was was right in the center of that, and wanted to be uh, people's you know kind of corridor into the internet, and and you know, like like had a, a really long run of some innovative search technology, and they actually um, had an opportunity to acquire Google, and and uh, passed on them. Uh, very early on. And, uh, um, you know, you can draw your own conclusions from that. <laughs> right. But, uh, but it was, a, I mean, it was a fantastic time, really uh, exciting to grow, kind of grow up in the industry at that, at that point and, and see the excitement and, and, um, and learn a lot about how uh, large scale web platforms were built. And more importantly, learn uh, a, a lot about what not to do. Yeah, I mean, I I was growing up at the same time. Like that was my first job was uh, Proxycom. Um, they were known as Proxima before that. Um, professional services organization built websites. Um, one of our biggest customers was Excite, which would be a very similar company to yep. where you were. It's that same thing of like, we want AOL, but on the internet. So let's own the homepage. Like this is where we want people to go and search and so on and so forth. And um, and yeah, I think you said learn. I think like it was really invent. Like I remember you know, me and, you know, the rest of us, we we're just sitting around trying to figure out how to make things work. Like, oh, this is, there's no session. There's, a, you just get a request and you send a response. You get a request, because, like, how do we know that the, who do we, who this is and how do we create yeah. a, a, like a web application for someone who's every single time giving us, you know, and it was before SSL and it was before cookies and figuring out model view controller on our own. Like we, you know, I'm sure a lot of people hit upon that same MVC pattern just independently. Um, I imagine you had similar experiences. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Facebook earlier, and you know, uh, I would have been jealous to to have PHP when <laughs> when we started at Lighthouse, right? Like server side scripting wasn't even a thing, and so we're we actually had in, invented an in internal um, an internal scripting server side scripting language, and it would that you know predated like ASP or anything like that. If you're, what was yours called? I don't remember now. Ours, ours was called PTML. <laughs> oh, nice. nice. I don't yep. remember exactly what it, or what it was called, but I remember it had a very uh, similar syntax to, uh, I mean, much more basic than than what Microsoft was uh, offering at the time in ASP, but it had, you know, greater thans and less thans and percents and, and all yep. that fun Ours, uh, ours predated JSPs, but looked very similar when JSPs came out. Um, I'm not going to take any credit. The the person who invented it all is this guy, Steve Hug, super smart guy. And he was, came up with this whole like language that we were going to use. And we're like, this is, this is insane. Now we can have non-technical people write uh, some stuff on websites and they're designers and they can make yeah. it look nice and we can take a step back. It was pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, Lycos was a very large company. A lot of people put uh, time and effort to making that successful. Like, I by no means. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't trying to suggest you were. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm, you know, CYAing myself. I don't, you know, I don't want to take credit for any of the things that uh, happened back then. Uh, yeah. No, entry level right. developer. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, we all were, right? I mean, there was a lot, everybody at that point, it wasn't a, uh, Everybody that was a computer or a, a developer, you know, to that point was doing like Fortran and COBOL and embedded systems and stuff cold like fusion. that. There was some cold fusion. I remember. Yeah, a little bit of that. A <laughs> little bit of that. Um, there was a lot of excitement around that for for a minute. And uh, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a really it was a crazy time and and a lot of fun. And I learned a ton. And um, 
um, you know, it kind of gave me a good launch pad. And, and I mean, the most important thing um, was I met a lot of really great people all around the world through that experience. What, um, what sort of lessons can you take from those early days there, you know, and going through those and, and sort of thinking about it in today's, you know, technology environment and web and stuff like that, you know, as you're growing a company? Yeah, I mean, I think one really important thing, and, and this can be more challenging than it sounds, uh, you know, up front, is, is you have to understand, you know, what's your core what's your core mission? What's your core competency? What are you actually building? Um, you know, like I said, at some point made a decision that they were a media company and not a software company. So if that if that's your your thought process, then technology becomes interchangeable. Like, oh, I don't need to build that. I can outsource it. Or I don't need to, to do that. I can I can get that from from a third party. And um, if you don't kind of understand that core of like what makes me different to the market. Um, you can give away your key, uh, your key asset, and, and, you know, and that's why at base operations we're we're so focused on um, the data acquisition side and being able to uh, gather all this data because that, because nobody has a central repository for a global set of data, and that kind of you know understanding that data and being able to have that data and make uh, assessments of it is central to what we're, uh, what we're about. And so that's not something that we can, you know, we can say like, oh, somebody else do this for us. Um, you know, th- those algorithms behind that are, are central to uh, what we're able to do. And I think, right. And I think when I think about um, companies and, and things like that, there's a Steve Jobs quote that I'm always reminded of with regard to like, it's not the things I said yes to, it's the things I said no to, something along those lines of like, it's like, yeah, we could go after that. But the fact is, it's just going to take us away from core mission and and so on and so forth. And um, I think it's it's frequently a really tough tough thing to do is to have that focus, retain that focus, and not try to solve problems that maybe take you away from it. Yeah, and I think in early early stage companies tend to uh, attract very creative people, and that's fantastic. You want that that vibrance, but without that kind of uh, 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 guiding star. Uh, of saying this is what we're about, this is our focus. You can very easily be torn in, or you know, shift into directions that aren't necessarily to that mission. And you know, you you as an organization have to be aware of what that you're making a conscious shift rather than having it happen organically. Like you want to say, like, oh, wait a second, we're, this is way off topic, or or you know, you want to be in a situation where you're saying we're going to change our mission versus, oh, wait, how did we end up here? Right, but how did we get here? Yeah, yeah, Um, Right, it's sort of that bridled creativity, you know, like... Yeah, trying to focus, you know, focus that, you know, and it can feel like hurting cats at times, but, um, but, you know, it's important, like, you know, to have everybody on the same page in terms of what is the mission? um, What are we trying to accomplish? And if it doesn't fit within that, Either we have a discussion about changing our mission or it falls. And um, it, it can just be a good filter. And that's not to say that there are bad ideas and that there won't be opportunities that come up in the future. But it's, cer- it's certainly when you're in an early stage, that focus can help you uh, um, accomplish something in the marketplace that nobody else can. Um, but if you try to do everything at once, it can be a real challenge with a smaller team. I think it's also, um, you sort of talked about it, but. Um recognizing when maybe it's, it's a shift. I, I can't remember the company. Um, it's 
there's a pretty famous story, but basically the, the technology they invented to just help them do their own jobs turned out to be the technology that they should be selling. And they like moved away from like what their thought was their core business to like, hey, we're really good at having implemented this like automation platform and to run our operations. And th- this, this is the technology. This is what we should be selling. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, there's a couple of smaller companies like uh, 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 Basecamp. I think had a similar problem where mm-hmm. a similar situation where where they were they didn't they couldn't find a good product management tool and 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 built something and then that ended up being their product. Yeah, actually, I think it might have been Basecamp that I was. I might have. That's why I probably was struggling. I think I've read the I've read so many of the same stories that it's hard for me to yeah. remember which one was which. Yeah, and some of them are like I've heard. Amazon did the same thing. Like they, when they were doing AWS, they needed a way for developers to get access to machines. Have I talked to anybody about at Amazon about that story? No, but <laughs> you know, there it is. <laughs> I was thinking of uh, ops, ops, uh, opsware uh, and loud cloud back in the day. It was like mm. early Ben Horowitz stuff. Uh, it's in his book where he talks about you know they were like automating all of these things and they eventually spun out that software they were using to automate everything into its own, like its own thing. Um, but an interesting, like an interesting point um, to what you were saying is like where we are in the days of technology to where like you can just focus on your only thing. Right. So like back at the, the Lycos days, like you had to do everything, like you had to build infrastructure, you had to do all of these things and you couldn't really kind of focus in on your core thing and I think we're in this interesting point in time, I think for the last like five years or so is where, um, and so like Mike and I have had these conversations when we were trying to add new capabilities to the platforms and things like that. And it's it's a very real discussion now, the buy versus build. And it's so much easier to just buy because they're already doing everything better. Um, but yeah, I think that's an interesting, like I can't even imagine like back in the days at Lycos, like trying to, you know, somebody comes up with a great idea and it's like, oh, cool, we could just build that. And it's like, well, no, wait, like we have to do all these other 300 things to even get close to that point. And like, they're all non-trivial things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the, uh, for a good chunk of the early portion that I was there, I mean, you were talking about massive Solaris machines being mm-hmm. at the center of search, right? Like, I mean, literally larger than a, uh, than a refrigerator. And, you know, they'd have to, you know, ship them up and, and set them up in our, in our data centers. And, you know, eventually that becomes a bottleneck. And, and the choice was essentially, I mean, this at different points in time, you have choices on which direction you want to go for te- technology. And it was like, do we build or buy at this point? And, you know, if you don't have your guiding star, it can be difficult to make that decision. You can say, you know, if we're a technology company and we're a search company and that's what we're going to do, how the hell can we even consider selling search? But if you're a media company, ah, whatever, search, everybody's doing it. You know, uh, uh, we can just buy that. Nobody nobody gives a crap if there's, you know, 60% accuracy or 65% accuracy. And if we spent a whole year developing, we might get to 65% accuracy. And then Google came out and crushed everybody, right? Well, and, but the, and and I think you know it's interesting is um, I I think a lot about what Google did and the time at which they hit and I I think of Google as being really a filtering company more than a search company because back in the early days it was finding and it was like how do I find these things they were just sort of hidden gems throughout the world it was and you couldn't it was hard to find anything relevant 
as things progressed and the web really took off, it became impossible to like, it's like, no, there's 50 relevant things. I just give me the best relevant thing. Give me the most relevant thing and become more of a, much more of a filtering problem than a search problem. And I think that was hard for a lot of search companies to adopt, adapt to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the metrics that were used to measure those companies weren't in, wasn't about its relevancy necessarily. It was about how many pages do you have in your catalog? How big was my catalog? And Google's like, well, what good is a large uh, Google assistant waking up to let me know or to to listen and (laughs) and see if I need any answers? Um, But, uh, you know, what good are are 300 million records if if I'm looking for one specific thing? And um, I I think that's, to your point, I think that's what they excelled at. Yeah, also on the build versus buy, sorry to jump in, also on the build versus buy, where I thought you were going to go when you were talking about the big Solaris boxes and like, oh, you know, maybe you guys were even considering like, oh, maybe we should just start building our own hardware and sourcing parts. I remember uh, something called a Google search appliance. There was actually a piece of physical hardware from Google that you would plug into your rack or whatever, and it would index all of your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong with a web crawler on your internet? <laughs> I mean, probably a security team's dream, right? Like they don't have to write Perl scripts and stuff to query all that stuff. They're just like, oh, we'll just let the crawler. And then I'll just type in username and passwords and see if they show up. And like, I'd have loved that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually a really good point. <laughs> yeah, it's our new business. Oh, yeah. uh, Jonathan <laughs> are kicking. Jonathan and I are kicking off a new business. We're building a an appliance you plug in and just yeah, just collects all the data. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you search over it. <laughs> <laughs> but another interesting thing on the Google is when they started to kind of focus on like the filtering and things like that. They didn't need massive Solaris things to get to the three millionth result on a page because nobody ever kind of you know, needed that, right? Like they could upfront all of their like knowledge and capacity, right? So they didn't need to index all of these things because they were like, ah, that's basically out of my window. If somebody wants that, like, you know, I can just query that like months later and I don't need to have it like forefront and kind of things like that. And then it would think it was just, you know, rocket ship after that. But but yeah, I mean, yeah, the appliance though. I remember the appliance. I like, I contemplated like getting one because I was like, oh, I, I, this is super cool because like knowledge management back in the day was absolute trash and internet search was like, oh, you had to upload your results and that was the search. And yeah. we used one on a production website. Um, that's how I knew about it. We were actually using it. It was uh, to index the entire, um, it was a government site. It was a very large government site. Um, made sense. I wasn't involved at all in the decision. I just was told, figure out how to make this thing work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's like a very interesting like point in time. Like it was back in the day when you bought physical appliances to do things, right? Like, oh, you needed a firewall? We're buying a box. Like you needed something to, to index all your things? We're buying a box. Like it was just like you're buying a box to go into your, your rack effectively. So, so I can buy a base operations box and just plug that in somewhere? <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That, no, you can't do that. No, it just, well, I mean, I... Like when you think about that, like in in those days, you know, there was this idea like, oh, I, you know, I got to go physically provision servers all over the place. And now, you know, with our infrastructure, we don't have any dedicated servers that are really running. We're all on a serverless platform that allows us to, you know, <laughs> I mean, things that were unfathomable in those days, but to allocate resources on demand and and 
and be able to scale uh, uh, as as widely as you want to uh, on demand, like way more capacity than we could possibly need, leveraging the uh, the public cloud options that are out there. I mean, it, it's really been a tremendous you know twenty year run in terms of where we came from and you know moving boxes around and and uh, finding servers stashed under uh, uh, drop floors and things um, right. to today where, you know, you know, I started an entire business or we've built out an entire infrastructure for this business without looking at a piece of hardware. It's an amazing journey. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I live in the dream. I think we joke all the time about uh, serverless, codeless, jobless, I think is sort of our. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's a natural progression there that eventually, uh, instead of coding in VS Code, VS Code will code us out of job. <laughs> well, it's also, it's kind of cool that you're able to kind of do a lot of this without having to sell like enterprise software for it and some sort of appliance because I think we're still, I don't think we've finally left that stage of the game with certain companies and certain yep. data feeds not wanting to leave their perimeter. And yep. so like Mike and I experienced this at the previous company we were at, Red Owl Analytics, which was a UEBA vendor where we were just ingesting a ton of data sources that were sensitive for the most part, like full email content, like all of those types of things. And when a large financial institution says like, oh, we don't run in the cloud, you know, you're going to have to do this on premise. And so that was a fun thing where you're trying to get servers provisioned and then, you know, you're, they're not actually servers, they're VMs. And then you're, you're dealing with all the performance impacts of the class of hardware they threw you on, even though you're trying to run a modern software system. So our problem was like, they originally designed it to run in the cloud. And then a couple customers were like, oh, we don't run in the cloud. And so it was like, well... We've already made like key decisions that require us to run in the cloud. So how do we now get this to not run in the cloud? Um, and so super yeah. complex problems that I think is probably great for you guys. Cause I mean, if we would have just gone straight cloud, like think my life would have been infinitely easier. Um, but yeah. I mean, maybe you've read the, the internal document I wrote about why we should just stick to the cloud, but uh, you know, Probably wouldn't have done as well because the financial institution, our bread and butter wasn't going to go there. But uh, that aside, but I mean, like that's the difference, right? Like SaaS is now much more common. Um, we can do things like what we're doing. Um, I imagine, so Jonathan and I talk about this a lot because it hits us a lot, is the security questionnaires, right? I'm curious, you're running a serverless architecture. Like when you're filling out these things to go do business with these companies, like What's that like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I'm curious think, on your IDS, IPS strategy. Yeah, yeah, what's your required IDS? by the ISO certification board that says, you know, you're defending yeah. inside your network. Yeah, I, I think I, I think the, the, the most trouble I have with those types of, uh, of uh, uh, um, security questionnaires is, is that the, is the distance from the person that's actually interested in the information that you're providing, right? Like usually it'll come through some, you know, a, a, a touch point outside of that, that team. And so when you're answering these questions and then they get back to them, they're like, wait, what do you mean you don't have a server? How is that? How, I, you have to have a server. Send it back to them or reject it out of hand. Um, but you know, I feel when you have those conversations more, more closely to the people that actually understand what's going on, 
they have a better um, a better understanding. And and from a security perspective, like the data, you know, the data that we have from a PII information or a PII standpoint isn't of interest to the our customers. So, you know, the fact, you know, even in, in the rare case that somebody penetrated our you know, our Google Cloud uh, environment and installed a bunch of data or AWS, um, we wouldn't be exposing customer data. It would be the data that we've, you know, our, our you know, effort and, and, uh, and data would be lost, not, not of our customers. So and you're so, not tracking, I'm sorry, so the, so I'm a user of your platform. You don't necessarily know where my people are. You just are providing me with data about information that I can use to right. then inform the people. Yeah, so it's 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 about it's more about an analyzing gathering and analyzing data about crime that's out there, not necessarily about the people in your organization. So, you know, you may have a list of sites that are private. You can you can then compare that with the data that we provide. And we can offer solutions to help customers that have, you know, a lot of customers will, or especially larger customers, will have a dashboard or something like that that they've already incorporated in. And we have an API infrastructure to allow them to, um, to integrate data into their system that they already have. So, you know, if they've got a tool that maps out their locations and there's in and it's rightly sensitive information then then we would integrate with them that way and it doesn't violate our you know our serverless kind of infrastructure we're not you know we're not using sessions or anything like that right right yeah no that's cool right like i could we could set up an alert that says in slack when there's I don't know, some sort of thing happening in dc that maybe people might want to stay indoors for yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think too, like you know, you those things are the things that make it into the news all the time, right. and 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 they're you know that's something where you know you're watching Twitter feeds, you're getting uh, chatter, intel, and things like that. What I think people are more commonly affected uh, by uh, crime or threats is is trends, right? Like so, you know, if you have the ability to look at two months, three months, six months, you can start to see trends and patterns of, of things increasing. And in, in a case like the, um, you know, staying indoors in DC, um, you know, that's, that's a, like a very intelligence related activity, right? Like, um, you know, more monitoring than historical perspective. Right, right, right. And so, like, you know, everyone, those are the big things that everybody's, like, uh, in the news about, but it's the slow gathering of problems or improvements that um, that you're really going to affect you in your day-to-day. -day. How, you know, where am I going to put my next office? How do I make sure that people on this site are protected, you know, what kind of lighting should I have in the parking lot? Because right. I understand- Maybe I should move this office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And where should I put it? Right. Or, you know, I'm driving uh, my trucks from, or I'm shipping my goods from point A to point B. What's the best route to go? And, and is that changing over time? Maybe in December, I should be driving this route and and in uh, in the summer, drive a different route because- you know, the demographics change, you know, whatever, whatever reason that is, you know, we see truck thefts increase in this area versus, uh, or this time of, of year uh, versus that time of year. Right. So, or it could just be that one route's more efficient, but higher crime, right. 
just have to do right. the math to figure out loss versus loss of efficiency. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, am I willing am willing to give up 10% of my product in order to get the the best gas mileage? Right. You know, in depending on what you're shipping, the answer might be yes or it could be no. I'm shipping gas. <laughs> 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 well, you know. <laughs> so I have a I have a weird question, I guess, technically. Um I you don't have to answer this if it's I don't know if it's a tr- secret. Um so say like the capital riots and all that stuff kind of happen, right? And so your customers kind of start logging in and kind of looking more and more at that. Do you guys have like a way of kind of ingesting more information when people are curious? Or are you kind of just out there just grabbing everything? Um, I don't know if that makes sense, right? Like as the capital riots start going, like Twitter starts going nuts. And then it's like, people are like, well, I want more information. Yeah. Like, are you then crawling out more or like kind of how does that work? Yeah. So like, you know, we have a, a comprehensive data set of, of DC crime. And that's in, that's an area uh, that a lot of people travel to, obviously. Um, a lot of international uh, people coming in and out of that area. We ingest that data on a regular basis and make sure that you know we're analyzing that crime. The Capitol Police have their own jurisdiction and have their own data that that, that they're requiring or that that they're uh, publishing. Up until <laughs> last month, it was the most boring feed you'd ever seen. Right, like you would get you know DUIs and maybe it was trespass. like Florida man. It was just, everything was like Florida man, but not as outlandish. Well, right. Yeah. And so, you know, that wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a priority to pull in that feed. As soon as we saw like, Oh my God, there's something going on here. We were able to very quickly pull that, that data feed in and, and add it to the, uh, add it to the platform. And, you know, we'll watch that going forward. Hopefully, Nothing like that ever happens again, and we don't have to worry about it. But I, you know, definitely want to make sure that that um, that the data is now incorporated into there and gives gives our customers the the most complete picture. Right, but I imagine that happens internationally, whether it's Paris or the U.S. or whatever. There's always going to be these like particular regions that suddenly have a hot spot for whatever reason, and and knowing that you guys are capable to sort of pretty close to very yeah. quickly get that data in, I think is is pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I think that's the 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 broader picture is like in the U.S., especially U.S.-based companies. You know, we have a pretty good sense that you know it's unlikely that you're going to have a major crime problem. Uh, your your crimes are happening in aggregate, and you you know there's no you know there's less ingrained uh, 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 grafts in, in shipping and other types of things. In other areas, you we just don't have always have the exposure and understanding like if I'm going into this city and I'm visiting, you know, on a personal level, I want to go out to lunch. What neighborhood should I go in or which one I should more importantly, you know, do, should I might may I want to stay out of um, all the way up to, you know, Hey, we're, we're expanding and we do a lot of uh, business in South America where, what, where should we look, you know, Wow, this rate, this this rent is really cheap. Uh, we should go there. And you look at the crime map and you're, or the the threat assessment. And you're like, all right, maybe not. Right. You know, maybe maybe you know maybe it's worth uh, a, a few extra dollars. And and this is probably not a good question, uh, but like from a because from a political perspective, it's probably not great. But the persona of the person probably matters a lot. There's certain areas that are going to be worse to go to 
as an American, for example, than as a European. Yeah. I, I, and I, I imagine that, that that's not something that you can easily encode in your stuff. Yeah, no, not yet. Um, I, I, I don't think like we don't right now we're not into indexing uh, necessarily victimology. So saying, um, uh, you know, some jurisdictions are very, very transparent with their data and also have a lot of information about victims. It's something that we've shied away from, not because of technical limitations, but we're very uh, sensitive to PII and, and, and victims' rights. And we don't, we don't want to contribute to any kind of uh, profiling or anything like that or, uh, you know, the leaking of that information. So it, it, it's something that, you know, in the future we could, we could if we had uh, enough safeguards in place, we could certainly take advantage of. Yeah, but I imagine it gets back to that first conversation we had, which was the the biases that are in the thing. Like, I imagine there's going to be, it's even harder to get some of the biases out of that data in a way, or to not contribute to making things kind of worse, if you will. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, we try to be thoughtful of the type of data that we're putting in front of people and making sure that that we're not reinforcing bias and and I you know so we want to move we want to move aggressively but you know have some caution and and thought in into what we're what we're sharing and what we're building. Right. It's aggressive but thoughtful, right? I mean it's yeah. <laughs> trying to find a balance. <laughs> right. And being a good steward. I mean it's just like I think that that's one of the things again, I think um shifts over time in, in terms of our space and technology and companies, there's, there's a little bit, you know, the, the, what's it, the, the Jurassic Park quote of like, they never stop to think if they should. Like, I think we, nowadays we do a lot more stopping to think if we should. Yeah. <laughs> At yeah, least I yeah. hope so. <laughs> Cause yeah. we've seen, we've learned our lessons from like, uh, that, that was a really, why didn't anybody say, don't do that. <laughs> in retrospect, we probably shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. I said I'm looking at you, Facebook, but anyway. <laughs> or Twitter, or right. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, like sharing links. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we've in, in the last you know five or ten years, we've seen the the, the spectrum of the good that can come out of you know uh, 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 pure, unadulterated free thought, and and all the bad of. Uh, of the same. So, right. And again, I don't think it's even militia, you know, it's just, it's a lack, it's the unintended consequences. I had a CEO yeah. that really uh, hounded on that back um, in my early days. And I, um, and I agree with them. There's, it's not that this was what you intended to have it have, have happen. It was that, you know, you did this thing, you guys were like, oh, this is awesome. And nobody really stopped to think about like, what are all of the implications? Like what could really go wrong if we go down this path? And I think we're, as a society doing them and technology, you know, we're doing a much better job in that regard, patting ourselves on the back. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> Every, we, we learned our lesson. Everything's perfect now. Exactly. That was you so can, last week. Oh, that, exactly. You can trust us now. Let's, let's build your car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And drive it for you too. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's a gradual process. And unfortunately, you know, <laughs> everybody focused or the news and social media focuses on the, the major negatives. And, um, you know, even though the vast majority of the interactions are, are, are overwhelmingly positive, you know, there's not a day that goes by that we're not searching on Google or getting news from Twitter. So thanks so much for joining us, Scott, Jonathan, uh, always a pleasure to talk to you and, and Scott, thanks for joining us. Um, anything, you know, anything you want to say, any, um, where can they go for more information about your company? 
Yeah, so you can check out um, baseoperations.com if you're interested in uh, uh, historical threat analysis. And uh, Jonathan, Mike, thank you so much for inviting me. I had a lot of fun, and and hopefully I did half as good a job as Corey did. It's tough, but I think you did. So thank you so much. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Right. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Cybrary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.